Think with me about Christmas Eve for a moment. Uh, when you, as a kid, or maybe your kids were younger, think about that with me. Santa is coming. Right? Maybe that was a thing in your house. And we need to get the house ready, cookies made, fire lit. The anticipation was pretty intense, if you recall it. And, and they would say, you know, unless you're asleep, Santa can't come, right? That's a, that's a good way to get you to try to fall asleep. Of course, that's so difficult, right? Visions of sugar plums dancing in your head sort of thing, right? Uh, but it's a wonderful type of anticipation and motivation, right? We're, I think we're about 83 days away. Uh, from Christmas this year. But I want, you, I want you to hold on to this thought, just that, that anticipation, that longing, that dream of fulfillment. We'll address it um, a little bit later. Now I want you to think with me about another scenario. Remember back in the day when the parents were coming home uh, after they've been out for a while and, and you had responsibilities, uh, or maybe your kids had responsibilities, scampering around the house to make sure the house was ready. But they're coming in the driveway now. <sighs> so if you've raised kids, you know you know the drill, right? They wait till the last possible moment to turn off the TV, race around to get the counters clean, pick up the laundry, maybe start the load you were supposed to start hours before, right? At least that's the way it was in my house. And my mom was pretty smart. As I recall, she would walk up to the TV set and feel the back of it to see how warm it was. <laughs> so, well, you know, the TVs are cooler now, uh, but the laundry is always obvious and abundant, maybe in your house as well. But probably um, one sibling kind of rose above the others with a, an attitude that said, like, see, I told you so. You know, they're, they're in full see, I told you so mode, right? I told you not to get that out. I told you it would take too long to clean up. I told you not to start a new show. Now you, ah, the intensity of preparation, you know, when, when something like that's coming, whether that's because of Christmas glee or parental dread uh, is really memorable. Uh, hopes and dreams, pressure and anxiety. And I want to take us to the time when the Jewish people were anticipating um, a Messiah. This is in the time of Jesus. Many had come and claimed to be Messiah, uh, claimed to be the one uh, that would, would bring in God's kingdom. And he would be king again. Uh, but there were, there were pressure groups that had formed all around to keep the, the people aware that they need to keep their allegiance to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. You need to take it seriously. They would say things like, God is never going to come back if we keep living like this. Or another group might say, if he does come back now, how will he judge for Israel and in our favor? How, if he comes back now, are we going to be on the right side of what Yahweh wants to do? So get your act together. There was a bit of scurrying in that time. See, the, the, the Jews at that time in, in Israel had been ruled by the kings in Rome for, for 90 years when Jesus began to preach the kingdom of Yahweh. Before then, lots of revolutions had attempted to, to purify the land of these unclean, pig-eating, idol-worshipping pagans. Not just the Romans, but before that, Syrians and, and on. The Jews were in their land, but they were still feeling the exile. Right, they'd been sent away, then they'd, they'd come back, trickled back in some cases. But it didn't quite feel like their land when I've got all these Roman soldiers marching up and down. Uh, 
They're in a different kingdom under the thumb of the oppressors. Rome was like, like imagine this, a, a giant living in your neighborhood, right? And it's best not to poke the giant. And so the Jewish establishment made enough backroom deals to keep their systems running. How do you govern a people? Well, you give them their stuff. You give them, you know, enough to make them comfortable. You, you raise some leaders from within them to kind of keep the system going. The high priest position was bought and paid for. Uh, the Sadducees were the wealthy aristocrats. And, and they, had, they had figured out how to lay low and live with the giant in their neighborhood. But they, they were still waiting. Um, all people were still waiting for the fortunes of Israel to be restored. Like, how, how are we going to get this giant out of the neighborhood? How are we going to have God reign among us? Uh, but the Sadducees and the high priests were, and the priestly class were a little more content to just kind of keep things status quo because they had the power. But the, the Jewish people were asking just, when will this release take place? The year of the Lord's favor, the forgiveness of sins, the, the cleansing of the land from all the idol-worshiping polluters. When will God become king again and kick the giant out? And so during this time, these pressure groups formed. One group was the zealots. And they would start riots by carrying swords under their cloaks in a crowd, and they'd kill a few Roman soldiers, and a, and a big fight would break out. Um, there, there was another more peaceful pressure group. They, they were called the Essenes. They were just as angry, but, um, but they withdrew. You know, let's go out of the city, out of this polluted land. Let's, let's have festivals in the desert. You, you've probably heard about their community in Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Uh, the, the Essenes um, also had had a had an idea that that if we just left the centers of Jerusalem, we could wait for the coming Messiah. They had this monastery in Qumran where they took the faith very very seriously. And just just this last month, um, documents have come out where they they now believe that this. Qumran site um, was actually more like a, a camp, <laughs> Camp Qumran, uh, where where they people would bring their scrolls and and they would they would when they would all gather together they would live in in those caves and camp out in those different caves. They would take take these baths. They had these ritual baths all over Qumran. Um, it was it was this little oasis there where they would have covenant renewal ceremonies and they'd come out there at the at the celebration of of the covenant and they would they would all baptize themselves and and they would get cleaned and get ready because they want God to come they had this this really amazing anticipation that that there would be this one that would come and the documents show this there there's this one who will be called great He'll be called the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, and his kingdom will last forever. <laughs> it's a lot like what Gabriel announced to Mary. There will be this one who is coming. So there's this, this sense of expectation. They had this idea that, that they could get out of the city, away from the corrupt temple, prepare for the king to come. They were probably the most serious, purest group that tried to withdraw and it may be that John the baptizer was one of these Essenes, though he, 
he brought that pressure back into his calling to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight paths in the wilderness, uh, themes that have come out of the Qumran community. So if we could just cleanse the people and purify the people, then the new exodus could begin, the return from exile. We can come back in and, and, and God will, will march his way in and we can start this process. So the Essenes, if I can simplify, and, and this is, of course, probably an oversimplification, left the corrupt halls of power and got themselves right. The Zealots were fine just killing Romans and, and causing uprisings. But a group called the Pharisees brought their pressure to the halls of power. They centered in Jerusalem, but they would send their members to all the villages and they would be um, known in all of the synagogues, kind of encouraging people and, and exhorting people and punishing people that, that didn't get their act together. They thought that the, the practices of the temples should be brought into the home, into the synagogue. Like, we, if, if it's good enough for the priest to be this pure, we need to be this pure everywhere. And so they, they thought they should just, we should take this all very, very seriously. Get ritually clean, tidy up that, don't touch that. They would add rules on top of rules to keep the guardrails up. You know, think of the Grand Canyon. If the law says, don't fall off the cliff, right? Don't, don't do it. Um, they might be the ones to, to guard the cliff edge, you know. Don't even, don't even go near the edge because we don't want to offend Yahweh. We want him to return. So they set up boundaries to keep you from getting close to the sin that would contaminate the land. That was their, their focus. And they weren't part of the power establishment of the Jewish people, but they did have influence. The council in Jerusalem held all the power. You know, the priests and the Sadducees. But the Pharisees were this pressure group and they wanted to reform and push and push and push. And there were different styles of Pharisees, probably two distinct um, ones. There were those who had a concerned, like I'm worried about the purity of the land, but still a live, let live mentality. Uh, Gamaliel was a key leader who wanted to get along with the Romans, study the Torah, and let God sort out this new sect of Jesus followers that was forming. We see that earlier in Acts. Just, maybe let him be. If, if, if it's of God, it'll succeed. But if it's not, it'll, it'll dissipate. Uh, there was this guy, Saul, who was trained under Gamaliel. But he, he took another approach. That there's, a, there's another style of Pharisee that we find that had a zealous edge to it. They would, they would punch you in the face to preserve the honor of God. And some groups of Pharisees were very violent, very zealous for God, and took as their heroes, their examples, those who would kill for Yahweh. It was serious business. Get your act together. It's not that hard. Do you want to see God come back and rescue his people and give us power and prestige, safety and security? Straighten up and fly right. Don't go after these silly messianic pretenders. Oh, I'm, I'm God, come close. God will not be pleased with that. And we're not going to get to be a part of the coming of the kingdom in our generation, which was a great hope that, that in this generation, the kingdom would come. So to use the analogy before, the parents are coming home soon, and I want to be on their good side when they come home. Okay. Well, Saul was one of these zealous types. He had the personality that that kept him just really in close contact with his allegiance to Yahweh. He just couldn't let it go. 
and a mind that had a vast amount of the scriptures memorized. He was the top of the class, the star pupil. He could be relied upon to whip the class into shape. Okay, so you got the picture? Saul's ready to do whatever it takes to clean up this movement and get back to worship of Yahweh on the throne. He's the king. He's the king of kings, right? In Acts 8, he's arranging the execution of Stephen and he's ready for more. It's time to whip the, the Hebrew people into shape and prepare for the coming king. And God's not going to come if this ridiculous group is parading around saying God's already come. Well, that's ridiculous. So someone has to do something. And the priests don't seem to want to upset the status quo. And the Sadducees have their political arrangements. But how about you let me take care of these upstarts? I'll be their bulldog and get this sorted. So here we find our text. <laughs> Acts chapter 9. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, looking for his commission, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Right. So he has, he has no authority over the Jews up in Damascus. He's a, he's a member of a lobbying group, a pressure group. But the high priest will let him be the bulldog and purify the people by bringing them into the council, just as Stephen was. Bring them before the judges, and we will, we will tell them um, what their fate is. Now, as Paul went on his way, or Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Right? They saw nothing, but they heard the voice. This is a like a personal vision with surround sound. <laughs> like when you think you're listening to your phone through your headphones, but it's really the speaker on the phone and you keep turning it up. <laughs> right? You can see it, but everybody else can hear it. So Saul is, is plodding along the road, muttering threats, breathing out curses, spent, and spending time in prayer. Most of us see those as separate lines of thought, right? Like, am I cursing? Am I muttering murderous threats? Or am I, am I praying? Um, sorry, God, I was just contemplating murder. Now, uh, back to my list of prayers. Saul, for Saul, they were one and the same. Think about that. I will defend your honor, Yahweh, King of Kings, seated high on the throne. I will defend your name. You are high and lifted up. I will do whatever it takes to purify this people. Now, some, some scholars, including Tom Wright, have imagined a scene where, where he's on the donkey and, and he's plodding along and he's praying the Shema as any good Jew would do. Here, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And you shall love the Lord Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You know? 
And then he might have gone into a, a common Jewish meditation ritual that was common in the day. Uh, we, of course, don't know this for sure, but it, it really fits the details. So just imagine with me that he's rocking back and forth on a hot road and meditating like others in his day on the presence of God from Ezekiel chapter 1. In fact, this passage was so mystical that leaders had banned young men under 40 from reading it. You know, Paul was like, Saul was, he could, uh, he could, he could read it, I'm sure, you know, he could memorize everything, right? But they didn't want him to read it because who knows where that could lead, all sorts of visions and all sorts of things. So he imagines the, the wheels of the throne chariot where God is riding toward his people in exile. The spirits in the wheels, the, the odd animal and human faces, beings with wings at the corner of the chariot. And, and just and these scholars imagine him just, just kind of looking up a little bit higher, a little bit higher. And what does he see? He, he sees the throne and, and the flashes of lightning. Dare he look higher in this meditation? Let me, let me read to you a little bit from Ezekiel's vision, just verses uh, 22 through 28 of chapter 1. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of the wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice above the expanse of their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a, of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. So, so like the appearance, right? He's very cautious, Ezekiel is, as, as far as describing this human figure on the throne. And like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the, the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So this is Ezekiel, seeing this vision, working his way up. Dare I look up, sees the throne and one with the human appearance. And this is where Ezekiel got his commission as a prophet. Where Saul exchanges his commission from the priests for one direct from the throne room. The divine council. This is where... All the prophets get their calling at the throne of God. You know, we often think about the test of a prophet as, as the test. Well, if what they, what they say comes true, then they're clearly a prophet. And that's true. Uh, but not all prophets um, are predicting. They're simply communicating what they've seen in the presence of God. Jeremiah 23, 18 and, and verse 22 make this clear. Um, let's talk about the prophets. Who, who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word, or or who has paid attention to his word and listened. Yahweh is saying, if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. So Paul is having this vision of 
Jesus, I believe, on the throne, right? Who are you, Lord? You are clearly king in charge. Mike Heiser describes this. He says, what does it mean to stand in the council? Uh, Jeremiah elaborates, to see and to hear his word, to pay attention to his word and listen. The one essential test of a prophet that has preceded their ability to deliver a divine message. So if they're going to claim to have a divine message, was that the prophet had to see and hear in God's counsel. So if if Ezekiel's throne chariot vision is what Saul experienced, he peeked up to see Yahweh and saw whom? Well, Jesus. Jesus on the throne. Lord Jesus. The heavens were opened to him and his world was shattered and completed at the same time. Just just completely obliterated and completed all at the same time. And Jesus says, why are you hurting me? I didn't know you were on the throne. I didn't know you were in charge. I, I didn't know you really were who they've been saying you are. I'm going to read a longer quote from Tom Wright. Tom Wright says, Everything that Saul of Tarsus said and did from that moment on, and particularly everything he wrote, flowed from that sudden, shocking seeing of Jesus. He was a highly intelligent, superbly educated, supremely biblically literate young man. We can imagine not just Ezekiel's chariot wheels whirring and flashing this way and that, but the well-stocked recesses of his mind and imagination darting and glancing to and fro from passage to passage of Scripture, from the recent memory of Stephen dying under a hail of rocks with a prayer to Jesus on his lips, very unlike other martyrs that Saul had heard of. And, And he's thinking to his parents, his teachers, his fellow students, his family, Maybe his fiance, and that's just a guess. But 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 if he was a young man, if he would be uh, he would be expecting to be married, or possibly be um, have a fiance already. Maybe he was married. We don't know. And back again in Paul's mind to the stories of Abraham and Isaac and and Moses in the burning bush and the prophecies of Isaiah and Daniel to the Psalms to the great royal promises like I will raise up your seed after you I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son the lord said to my lord sit my sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool surely it couldn't mean surely it didn't mean supposing it really did mean back to the book of acts saul rose from the ground And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. (laughs) It's a good thing that Saul had the Hebrew scriptures memorized so that the the time while he was blinded, he could sort through his well-stocked imagination, his well-stocked memory, through this very odd ending to a journey but the beginning of a whole new journey, a new starting line to see Yahweh for who he truly was. Tom Wright goes on about this. He says it was three days before he could do anything except simultaneously recoil from the horror of what had happened and gasp at its glory. Have you ever been hit like that? What have I done? I've been so misinformed. 
right, says, we call this event a conversion, but it was more like a volcanic eruption, thunderstorm, and tidal wave all coming together. If the death and resurrection of Jesus is the hinge on which the great door of history had swung open at last, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was the moment when all the ancient promises of God gathered themselves up, rolled themselves into a ball, and came hurtling through that open door into the wide world beyond. Through Saul of Tarsus, this message would go out to the Gentiles. We'll learn more about that in the following messages. But Saul and all of Israel have been waiting for the time when, when God would become king again and rule from Jerusalem. And, and there he is. He's now on his throne. Maybe on this mobile throne chariot, Godmobile idea, where, where he's very, uh, very mobile now. And I want us to think about ourselves. What are you personally waiting for? What's the pursuit that captures your heart? What are the longings that you have in your heart? Because all of our longings point to him. We'll get more into Paul and the way uh, his name is Saul. His name is Paul also. Uh, the, way, the way Saul turned his heart and, and turned the world upside down. But I want you to just think about your longings right now and how they point to Jesus. Our longings for beauty find their fulfillment in the good, beautiful Jesus. Our longings for justice find their beginnings on the cross and the reign of Jesus until evil is quarantined in the new creation. Our longings for love are filled by the Spirit, revealing the Father's love in our hearts. You know, Saul has the heavens open to him, as we've seen in multiple passages now. And there's a new starting line. Okay, so this is where I go from here. Our hopes are completed in the reign of Jesus. If Jesus is on the throne, then a whole new thing has happened. The year of the Lord's favor. And so it begins, just like it began in Jesus' ministry. Let me read you this passage. You, you may recall Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is where we as a church, we as Jesus followers, worship Jesus. This is where, where we just get knocked off our donkey. This is where you bow down and get your commission. If Jesus is who he says he is, Lord, King, Ruler, master, savior, then the world is a whole different place. 
Jesus is pursuing you and he's all for you. And now it's time to turn and face the King of Kings. And then let's together live our lives out, showing a watching world that our longings have been met in Jesus himself.